Dotnet Rocks, episode 1055, with guests Udi Dahan, Ted Neward, Orrin Eni, and Eve Huliev. Recorded Monday, September 29th, 2014. It's Dotnet Rocks! That was awesome. Wow. This is there's they made almost as much noise as the trains. <laughs> I didn't realize that this place is called Dumbo because of an acronym. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm sure about everything up to the O. Is it overpass? So it's the down under Manhattan Bridge, Bridge overpass. overpass. Okay, right? that's Dumbo. Because the, the Manhattan area. Bridge is basically over top of us here. Yeah, yeah. It's and we right hear there. It. And, they, and there's a uh, whole deck of that bridge that carries just subway trains, and they let you know every about 30 seconds or yeah. so. So we're not going to do our usual... We probably won't have time to do our, or, or the ability to do our usual noise reduction, so it might be a little noisier than usual. But anyway, that's not why we're here. We're here to do .NET Rocks, and the first thing that we do is a little segment that we call... Better know a framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? How many guitar players in the room? Uh, clap your hands. Clap your hands. Wow, it's quite you. All right, come on. We're in New York. Yeah. Guitar players make great programmers. So how many of you heard of the Gibson Robot Guitar? Another clap your hands. All right, see, less, less. So right. the rest of you, you're in for a treat. Really? Go to gibson.com slash robot guitar. Now, this is a self-tuning Les Paul. Self-tuning. It has gears that automatically tune to A440. You don't have to use a tuner. You just say, click, tune, and they're in tune. Perfect That's tune. terrifying. And then you have a knob with six presets. So if you want different tunings, oh. you can just turn the knob and it tunes itself. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Well, because in, in concerts, you normally have a bunch of different guitars tuned to different things, and they switch guitars. That's when what they I mean. Things. And this costs as much as all of those guitars. <laughs> <laughs> so why would you have all those guitars? Why, why would you do that? Yeah, it's going to co- cost you a lot less at the airport, right. basically. I guess so, yeah. That's really cool, man. Yeah, and I've known about this for a while, but I haven't really had... A chance to play one yet, and uh, but I think I'm I'm leaning towards uh, you know really asking Santa for it. Nice, a new yeah. toy for you, or whatever. I love it. That's cool. It is cool. All right, Richard, who's talking to us today? I grabbed a comment off of show 975, which we did uh, with Mr. Udi Dahan, where we talked about a little bit about End Service Bus. Anybody heard End Service Bus? <laughs> Shaking their head. Nope, no, no idea, not at all. And this comment comes from Steve Smith. Not that Steve Smith. Oh, different Steve Smith. Different Steve Smith. He says, this was an excellent show, guys. I spend a heap of time in the service-oriented architecture world, but up till now, I hadn't really understood what Udi was bringing to the game. At last, I understand that he's providing all the plumbing in the ecosystem that we always end up having to implement over and over again, extra to the bus itself. As a result, I now recognize the value proposition behind End Service Bus. Listening to Udi, his experiences absolutely resonated with my own, though I thought I'd like to get beyond the perpetual boat anchor of explaining the benefits of PubSub to the world sometime soon. I think I'm everybody's sick of explaining PubSub. Yeah. 
Right, maybe you it's aren't. a simple concept, but to grasp how important it is, you really have to be overloaded. And how much it makes a difference in the way you design software in the end. Yeah. Steve, thanks so much for your comment. We loved it. It was in the perfect environment. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or with any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our panel. Uh, starting with Udi, I'm going to let you guys just introduce yourself. Many of us know who you are, but uh, maybe out in the listening world they don't. So Udi Dahan. All right. I'm Udi Dahan, creator of InService Bus, and now heading the wonderful group that uh, continues to develop uh, InService Bus and all of the platform around it. And uh, I also talk about service-oriented architecture, domain-driven design, and all sorts of distributed systems concepts. That's me. All right. Mr. Neward. My name is Ted Nord. Uh, I've been a technologist, architect, et cetera, distributed systems, you know, all that stuff Udi just said. Uh, I've been doing that across the .NET and the Java worlds, more recently into some of the JavaScript and Ruby worlds. Um, written a couple of books, write a couple of articles, um, and currently I'm the CTO of a consulting company based in Seattle. All right, Oren. Um, my name is Oren I'm also known as Ayn in 2004, I started using Hibernate, fell into the database part. Today, I'm writing databases for a living, and that's about it. <laughs> okay. Also, I blog. Yeah, you blog. You write code from what yeah. we hear. Yeah, we even run some of it. Yves. Okay, my name is Yves Houleve. I'm from Belgium. Um, I'm a Windows Azure MVP and a very familiar with cloud computing, and I'm also a developer on the Service Bus platform um, to bring all the goodness of the cloud to Service Bus. Awesome. So, uh, Udi, we'll start with you. And we've done shows on Service Bus before. There's still maybe people out there who, uh, who don't get it. And so just give me the elevator pitch why, why this particular piece of the puzzle solves so many problems. What, what, what does it do for us? Number one thing is it prevents data loss when bad things happen to systems. And bad things happen to systems in production all the time. So it provides a programming model so that you build your system a certain way and then we'll handle all of the underlying infrastructure and make sure data doesn't get lost. And then since then we created a whole bunch of other tools to make it easier to manage and monitor and deploy and to scale. That's in service bus. So this is the, the sort of the classic definition of middleware, right? Except that it works. <laughs> what? So, That's, why is that funny? <laughs> I think I just pushed a button. Or so, yes, it is very much in the middleware space. I'd say that uh, one of the things, if we kind of look over history, middleware has tended to be lower level and focused primarily on the, the pipes and not so much around uh, making it easy for developers to use it the right way. So it was very rich, very powerful. You could make it do all sorts of things from a chat application to medical devices and uh, millions of little knobs and dials that you can turn on it. Uh, but when you sort of get it, it's kind of like uh, opening up uh, something that you purchased at Ikea and not actually finding an instruction manual of telling you what is the thing you're actually going to build and what pieces go where. So within Service Bus, we ultimately said, hey, let's actually take out all of the big complex options, give you a default. This is how you use it. 99% of the time you use it this way, it will solve your problem. And all of the other things we put behind various extension points. 
So if you could put it in its historical context for us, um, you know, starting with the web services that we were all behind in XML, web services in the 90s, or I guess it was 2000 or something like that, 99. And then, you know, going forward a little bit, when did this come on the scene in terms of uh, uh, the, the revelation? You know, when did the light bulb go off? When did the light bulb go off so like 2000? for me? No, 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 uh, I mean as an architecture, having a service bus, an enterprise service bus. So I think that the, the idea of middleware has been around for, you know, it's much before the 2000s. We're talking about 80s. Um, and, you know, mainframe environment, CICS, the, these sorts of things have been around for quite some time, never particularly easy to use. Yeah. They, they grew in scope. You had uh, TIBCO, I think, one of, one of the earlier companies uh, yeah. moving in that space. So a lot of this technology has been around for, for quite some time. Uh, I'd say that uh, to a large extent, uh, say during the period of the 90s, it kind of got farther and farther away from the developer experience uh, to some extent because, well, when you're charging millions of dollars for a product, you're not going to be talking to developers saying, hey, you should really use this. Uh, it's more of uh, having a conversation with the CIO, taking him out to golf, letting him win, and then please sign here. Uh, so... I'd say during the, the, the late 90s, there was a, a little bit of a, 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 a loss industry-wide of interest in what was known as enterprise application integration. That was yeah. sort of the big promise that was built on top of middleware brokers. That that kind of got as big as it was going to get and kind of fell apart uh, towards the late 90s. And that's when the concept of a service bus was coined. And of course, all the vendors are like, oh, you don't want an EAI broker? You want a service bus? Hey, no problem. We'll just change the slides. Right. Yeah. We'll change the name. Yeah. So it's no longer, you know, Tibco uh, Tuxedo. Now we are calling it, and Rendezvous was the other middleware. Now we're calling it Tibco EMS because it has to be enterprise. That's what the E stands for. Okay. You pay extra for that. <laughs> And so this sort of these, uh, these early versions, as you said, were pretty low level. When did this sort of high level um, developer oriented pluggable bus evolve or emerge? I don't know, Ted, maybe you can talk more, because I think on the Java world yeah. is where it started the most, and then I kind of piggybacked off a lot of those ideas yeah. from, say, uh, Java Message Beans was probably the earliest yeah. version. Well, in the Java space, we had, starting in 98, uh, Sun came out with the first rev of the Enterprise Java Beans specification, which, given the players involved, it was actually very surprising that they didn't include messaging at all in the 1.x versions of EJB which they corrected later. First, they came out with the Java message specification, which basically was how do you as a Java programmer write code to a messaging product? And then once that was out in, in the world, right, and you had a bunch of different vendors that were JMS compatible, then Sun said, okay, now as part of the EJB2.x version of the spec, we can include message-driven beans, was the way they described it, MDBs, that you know, would essentially respond, you know, the bean would fire when a message came in that met a certain criteria. And so in many respects, the really interesting thing was, despite all of this history of middleware and so forth, transaction processing, grand router and all that stuff years prior, 
for most people in the Java world, seeing JMS and seeing message-driven beans, this was really new material. Yeah. This was brand new material. And one of the things that happened alongside, of course, in the Java world was, in addition to all those big vendor players that Udi mentioned that were you know, jumping into the Java world, because that was very clearly where all of the enterprise focus was going, with all apologies to Microsoft, that's where all of the enterprise focus was going. Sure. Um, the, the, by virtue of the fact that Sun spent all this time of creating these specs meant that there were also a series of open source message tools, messaging tools and so forth that were coming out as well. And so what happened was um, even as you know, IBM and your CTO are out on the golf course you know, hitting the back nine, you as a developer, as a Java developer, were downloading the open source version of JMS and you were plugging it into an open source EJB. And you were starting to discover some of the goodness that was, in, that was inherent in messaging. And then we realized we don't really need the EJB part of this. We could just do the messaging stuff. So yeah. some of the open source community, you know, MuleSoft and some of these guys kind of went, took a left turn and said, okay, we'll just leave the EJB stuff alone because that was really more complicated, all this transaction support. We don't need all of that. Right, right. We'll just go and do this messaging thing. And what if we just put the messaging backplane at the center of all of this? Right. And I can't remember, I think it was uh, Sonic was the first one to sort of commercially do enterprise service bus as a, as a vendor name, saying instead of just using this as a communication, put this at the center of your entire right. enterprise space. And all of the things that need that data can just sort of hang off of it. Just plug into yeah. it, right? And particularly because it was tapped into the open source community. So, you know, as a developer, I could start playing with this at no cost, right? That was a lot of what led a lot of Java's, you know, uh, explosion amongst developers. Okay. was the fact that I could start playing with this stuff without outlaying any capital whatsoever. So the ESB things started to grow, started to get bigger. Right. The, you know, there was some, you know, if you look at the Venn diagram, there was some overlap between the ESB world and the whole WSDL SOAP world. Right. You know, we got, you know, BPAL, business processing execution language and all of that stuff. It got very crazy, didn't it? Got, it got incredibly crazy. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, Microsoft threw BizTalk into Biz the middle Talk, of all right. this. And you know, God help us all at that point. Yeah. But BizTalk wasn't, didn't come out as an ESB, right? It was about... It was a uh, translation layer, right? Yeah, really. it, it, it was uh, EDI. Electronic data interchange. I mean, that was the origin of it. Right? It Biz wasn't talk, even meant for the internet. BizTalk was whatever the Microsoft sales rep wanted it to <laughs> yeah. be. Right. Whenever no, no, he no, was no, talking no. to you, no, no, no. twenty-five grand a server. You better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hold on a second. I, I'm going to give Microsoft some credit. I've given them a lot of crap over the years, but in the early days, when we're recording we, this, right? No, so he's no, on right. Right. I'm record. I'm on record. Right. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Uh, the BizTalk team in the early days, so this was still in the Bill Gates days, uh, they were there, they put out the product, and you know the sales guys were saying, hey, the market wants uh, an ESB. Can we call this an ESB? And back in those days, the platform team, the product group, got a lot of say over how the product was marketed. And the BizTalk team said, this is not a service bus. Right. This is a centralized broker. It does translation, it does routing, it does a lot of things, but it's not a service bus. It's not meant to be distributed. And of course, the sales guys were saying, but 
you know, look at TIBCO or look at IBM. They're all doing exactly the same thing and they're calling themselves service bus. Why do we need to be holier than all of them and not sell anything? And then Bill Gates left and the balance of power shifted towards the sales guys. Developers, and then you got developers, developers, developers. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. And then the sales guy says, you know, uh, I mean, balance of power does not just flip overnight. So first you got the ESB guidance toolkit, and then it became the ESB toolkit. Okay. And then it just became called an ESB. Right. Uh, but, you know, in the early days, you know, the, the platform team there was very clear, this is not a service bus. And so one of the things that's confusing, uh, at least to somebody who's looking at this for the, you know, for the first time, is that everybody seems to have a service bus. And isn't a service bus supposed to be this ubiquitous thing that everybody can play in and connect to, right? You know, that, that's sort of based on standards and everything. But, you know, Azure has a service bus and, you know, Joe has a service bus and Dave <laughs> has a service bus. And so what, what are the differences between, because we've talked about this on .NET Rocks and I had the same question before, which is, you know, you... I guess, and, and correct, I'm going to let you answer, but what is the difference between all of these things? And why one service thing bus about is not another service bus? The beautiful bus. thing about standards call is everybody's got one. Nice. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the you know, and I'll, I'll obviously let Udi chime in with his own view of it, but at the end of the day, we in this industry have this incredible gift for coming up with great definitions and then ignoring them. <laughs> right, and so you know we could go back and talk about what is object oriented. Yeah, mean, right? right, and then go back and look at the so debate. Agree with my point, though. That oh, absolutely, everybody's definition is different. Absolutely, everybody's got a service bus, and they're all they're all conceptually the same until you actually try to use them, and then you discover that one guy's topic is another guy's queue, is another guy's exchange, exchange is another guy's you know, broker space. And so your service, and service bus seems to me to be a service bus, service bus. Certainly according to Udi. Is that crazy? Uh, so, so first of all, let me say, on the topic of standards, beyond the fact of, of what uh, Ted said, that, that yes, there are lots of standards out there, uh, even if we look specifically at messaging standards, so there's the AMQP, the Advanced Message Queuing Protocol, yeah. uh, which is the wire-level protocol that all of the messaging tools are supposed to implement. Now, for the longest time, AMQP as a spec was stuck at 0.91, okay? Then, recently, they came out with 1.0. 1.0 is not compatible with 0.91. <laughs> All right? Azure Service Bus is AMQP 1.0 compliant. RabbitMQ is 0.91 compliant. Those two things can't talk to each other. And this is just messaging. Okay, this is not all of the other things that we want to do on top of it. So that's where things, you know, as Ted was saying, first of all, you know, even if the spec was good, even if it was compatible, sometimes people just don't implement it right. Okay? Yeah. Uh, sometimes, let's say, more frequently <laughs> than not, they don't implement it right. Or, uh, what's worse, is the spec isn't... Because in the Java world, we lived this whole specification thing, right? And there were many cases where you would have a spec, two or three or more vendors that were... Even though the spec defined how each of these vendors were supposed to interact with each other, there were holes in the spec. There were bugs, right? Omissions, etc. And each vendor, you know, had to interpret the spec in their own way. 
So you couldn't even point the finger and say, right. you're right and you're wrong, you need to fix. They were both right, or they were both equally right. And so now what it came down to is you had to fight it out in committee. And the committees are a great place to resolve difficulties like that because everybody is so <laughs> focused <laughs> on trying to come to a solution that works best for everybody, even if it means more work for my company. Oh, that's awesome. But okay. let me just chime okay, in on yeah. that. That the same thing happened with web services. A lot of yeah. a lot of developers are not aware of this, but the original web services specification, um, it, it it wasn't interoperable. Right. They, they actually had to create a whole separate committee called WSI. Okay, the Web Services Interoperability Group that was a much smaller subset in order to get this smaller group to agree on what the spec is going to be so that the web services that would be created would be interoperable with each other. Yeah. And incidentally, .NET web services that you create by default are not enforced to implement WSI Basic Profile 1.0. So you might be thinking, oh, I'm doing web services, they're interoperable. They're not by default. You actually have to turn on the enforcement bit, and then all sorts of things that you thought that you could use no longer can be used. Right. So we, we as an industry have a long history of yeah. creating all, all of these problems. Back to your question about yes. and service bus specifically, right. what, we've, what we've done primarily is, um, in terms of the problem space that we tackled, is that we didn't want to get into the integration space, the, the space between systems. The world that I was coming from, I said, well, just a single system by itself, if it can't be reliable, you're not going to be able to solve that from around it. So let's, as an industry, just start creating more reliable systems and let's create infrastructure that supports that. So even if it's just a pure .NET system and all it's talking to is itself, mm -hmm. let's just get that problem solved. From there, you know, the next step was, well, if you've got two in-service bus systems that are talking to each other, let's make sure that that works across our own versions. So we're very careful <laughs> in terms of our backwards compatibility. We didn't want to do the AMQP 0.91 yeah. and AMQP 1.0 crap. Yeah. Said, you know, if it works, it's going to work across these versions. And so companies can make sure that, that that's working. And then growing it out from there, but starting at a very stable core and making sure that at an API level, developers could just keep programming exactly the same way. So now what about this uh, compatibility issue that I'm talking about with all these different versions of service buses and, and things? I mean, I, th I sort of think from where I sit that a guy like you, an independent, has a better shot at keeping compatibility among all these other guys because you don't have a system to and legacy to, to, to bind it to, you know what so, I mean? So, yeah, on the topic of, you know, our ability to, to kind of bridge these things, when it comes to third parties, we have no, we have no more ability than anybody else. Yeah. I mean, there was one client I was at, biggest B2B integration hub in South America. They were telling me that they needed to, to integrate a whole bunch of retailers with each other, sending invoices and purchase orders and all that kind of stuff back and forth with right. each other. And the retail industry has a spec. It's called GS1, defining how all of these things work. Only thing is, there's a different GS1 spec for Colombia than there is for Mexico, than there is for Argentina. Because everybody's got one. Exactly. Everybody's got a standard. You, uh, 
So there's no way for us to say, well, we have created a GS1, GS1 sure. integration endpoint that you can all use everywhere and it will work for you just fine. In other fine. words, your standards are much more high level than that and, and everybody, anybody can send a message to you. Well, the, the thing is that when it comes to integration with third parties, yeah. that's a problem that we punt on. Yeah, we say, you, you say almost that's not always my you're going, you, the developer, are going to have to write code to deal with all of the crazy idiosyncrasies right. of the world out there. If you want to talk about a company that has been trying to solve that problem, that would be MuleSoft. Okay? So sort of a universal amongst many others. Amongst many others. Sort of a universal translator. Kind exactly. Of thing. Yeah. So, you know, their focus has been how do we get this this integration hub and plug into all of these crazy types of environments. When people ask me, say, well, how about us? You know, you know, if we need to do that, how can we do that? Say, well, sometimes it can be just a very simple data map or sometimes you just need a very simple XSLT. Don't go throwing BizTalk in the mix when all you right. need is an XSLT. Right. Don't go you know, doing all sorts of crazy things when 20 lines of C-sharp of mapping things back and forth will right. do. As somebody who's done a lot of this between .NET and Java worlds, among others, um, you know, one of the things that I saw, and going back to what we were talking about, you know, the whole WSDL soap space, right? That, that was an attempt to try to create distributed systems that were open-ended interoperable. Yeah. Meaning anybody who spoke SOAP, right? Anybody who could consume a WSDL could in fact play in this world. Now, practically what that meant was we were talking about just .NET and Java because C++, there, there was never any sort of C++ WSDL binding generator. Ruby guys didn't care. JavaScript wasn't really a thing yet, but they didn't care. Perl didn't care. I mean, more languages, more platforms didn't care than did. And the other thing is I watched companies literally sink like tens of millions of dollars into creating these interoperable scenarios, even though internally they were all .NET. Why? Well, because someday we may have a client that dot, dot, dot. Trying to okay. predict the future. Well, I mean, this is classic Yagni, right? From the Agile world, Yagni, Y-A-G-N-I, you ain't gonna need it, right? This was classic gold plating. And even if you have a scenario where you've got a .NET component that needs to talk to a Java component, you still don't need open-ended interoperability. You need .NET to talk to Java. Yeah. And so I'm going to back Udi on this one and say, I don't think N-Service Bus wants to be that point of integration yeah, yeah. Yeah. ever, largely because, A, he will have to try to approach this from an open-ended interoperability perspective. And that's, I mean, that's just a dark hole. It's a bottomless pit that he doesn't want to get into, I don't think. Unless you've got a lot more money and you want to but feed it, some of know, it this way. But, <laughs> but it's, and I want to hear from stage right in a minute. But um, um, I really get the sense that what was really great about having these, this middleware wasn't the fact that we had all this stuff hanging in translation and all that stuff, but that it was a central bus. And so that's what you're doing with and service bus is saying that's the piece that needs to be scalable, that needs to be you know, fault tolerant, that needs to be all of this. All of these other translations and things can happen at a much less uh, scalable level, I say, I guess. So, so I'd it. agree with almost everything that you said except okay. for one key word. Sure. Central. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. That, the, the, the problem is that people have been drawing these hub-and-spoke diagrams for years, yeah. and it's, 
intuitively to an engineer, it's like, well, if I've got all of these things that I need to talk to each other, if I do point to point, that's an order of n squared integrations. Yeah. If I put a thing in the middle, then it's n integrations, much simpler. And my life is easier, says the developer. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, all right, touche. So that's where it Good starts. Point. It's you know, it, it's intuitive, but it's wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah. With n services, we say that what makes n service bus work is that there is no central anything. And service bus is everywhere. Yeah. And that's what makes it work. The fact that it, if you want to build a distributed system, you want to use infrastructure, which is itself distributed. Yeah. I just had an interesting thought. Udi's quote, and service bus is anywhere. Everywhere. You know who else? You know who else is everywhere? NSA. <laughs> uh, NSA. NSA. NSB. Oh. Udi. Udi has created the oh next gosh. generation NSA. <laughs> you Holy s***. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Guess what time it is. Ah, uh, it must be that happy time again. Time to admit I don't have a goddamn joke. <laughs> Ted just popped a good one. I don't I, think there's I'm, anywhere to go I'm from gonna there. I'm going to defer to Ted. <laughs> for the humorous section of the middle of the show. There you go. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer <laughs> needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Oleg Kalenbet. Congratulations, Oleg! Woo! And uh, Oleg just won the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress. It's a whole pile of awesome from them. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away a sponsored product. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one randomly picked member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Oh, my God. We have four guests. It's going to oh take a boy, while. This would take a while. Be brief, gentlemen. We, li we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? Should we start at the far end? Eves, yeah. who's been terribly quiet. He has. He's bought $5,000 to spend on technology. What would you get? What I would buy? Um, probably a lot of small devices to play with. Uh, uh, love it. Yeah. Uh, you know how many Arduinos you can get for five grand? Yeah, or, a lot. Or, or a hundred or something. Yeah, you get 150 Raspberry Pis. Absolutely. You can them. That's yeah. awesome. Oren. A big ass SSD drive. <laughs> there are terabyte <laughs> SSDs out there right now. Yes. And Intel's now making 800 gig 1.8 inch drives. The little, little ones. Okay. You can fit, and ask me how I know this, you can fit 60 of them in a 2U rack unit in the face. How do wow. you know that, Richard? Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been trying to figure out just how much storage I can stick, stick in a 2U chassis. <laughs> That's really awesome. And again, I do database for a living. Ion is extremely important. I love that idea. Yep. Okay. More storage faster. Ted. Oh, man. You know, um, 
Five grand. What would I do with five grand? Probably would get. Um, I'm thinking with these small devices, mobile devices, More get, uh, you know, iPads, tablets. That Have you sort of seen thing. the Intel NUC? Yes. The next unit of computing. Two decks, two decks of cards, but 16 gigs of RAM, i5, four cores, uh, HDMI video, USB 3, and no fan. Solid state. Nice. Yeah. It's nice. an epic little machine. And they're about 500, 600, depending on how you configure them. Nice. So you can get a six-pack of them easy. Get ten of those, yeah. you know, and then sew them strategically into the vest. <laughs> I am the mobile cloud. You are our server. <laughs> That's beautiful. Udi. Well, I, I mean, jumping off of the NSA, NSB thing, uh, <laughs> I figure a whole lot of, you know, listening devices and oh. Wi-Fi access points out there in the world placed strategically. Don't um, I, I think that there'd be lots of valuable data that uh, that could be analyzed from that metadata, mind you. Yeah, metadata. We wouldn't. No, we, I, I wouldn't actually look at the at the the, the, the raw data that's flowing no, in. No, no. Who would do actually, that? Can I take my five grand and just be in Ben Gurion Airport when he tries to go through security with all this stuff in his bag? That's what I want to do. I just want to watch. I think you take your five they grand. They don't actually care for. about that. They're like no. saying, "Do you have cigarettes? No. Alcohol? No. You good." <laughs> it's not the all same right. at all. All right, we've got to dive back into this thing. Should we talk a little bit about the cloud in the context of Service Bus? I yeah. think that's. I'll yeah, definitely that's cover that one. Um, I'm going ahead of my talk uh, tomorrow already because I will actually cover that in my talk tomorrow. Oh, yes. Um, but I think in Service Bus is a perfect platform for uh, running on top of the cloud uh, because the cloud is actually a very different beast. Um, the things that we take for granted on-premise, they are not always uh, so in the cloud. Um, and actually, it's a more flaky environment than what you can ever imagine having. That's a what people don't talk about is that the cloud is no, a flaky environment. No, it's a flaky environment. And it's actually to be expected, right? It's, it has been designed that way, and uh, it's actually what you need to design against. You need to accept failure, and you need to be sure that your application is actually built in such a way that it can handle failure at any time. Right. And uh, even, I will talk into all the details tomorrow, but that's actually what a service bus handles very well, is to have individual components that can talk to each other, even though part of the system is unavailable. And even internally, it will make sure that everything comes correct again, that everything will turn out right eventually. So in my opinion, that's the most important reason to almost always go with a framework like in Service Bus. Now, you'd rather run in Service Bus in a VM in Azure than run Azure Service Bus? Uh, no, they're, they're actually two different things, right? Okay. Um, Azure Service Bus is communication infrastructure that might be there or not be there. Um, but it's run as a service, right? It's, it's Microsoft's property, and they will be running it, and right. you can leverage it for your uh, applications. But and service bus actually brings you a layer on top of that with a lot of convenience, a lot and a lot of uh, additional features on top of it as well. So you see the two interoperating. Yes, we definitely run it that way often. That we use Azure Service Bus as the internal uh, transport, and then have end service bus on top of it dealing with all the uh, all the facilities and everything that's there. Now here's here's a question because the because the cloud is flaky. And, we, and and service bus is really designed to uh, you know prevent data loss. Would you be run, is your do you recommend people run and service bus on prem? 
so if somebody's going to be running on the cloud because it makes sense for them, right? Right. So that that's decision one. They're not going to be making a decision cloud versus on premise because of in service bus. There are other business reasons that somebody would want to go to the cloud. If you're on the cloud, okay, uh, then there's the whole issue of platform as a service versus infrastructure as a service. Microsoft in the early days tried to convince everybody that you really should be platform as a service. Three years later, they kind of gave up convincing and said, all right, we're going to do infrastructure as a service just like anybody else because that's what people are buying. Uh, the work that we've done together with Eves uh, has, has integrated with Azure Platform as a Service. So we are pulled into the worker roles on Azure. And in Service Bus, on top of Azure Service Bus, so it gives developers the same programming model as if they were on-premise. But does it but give a them different the same safety? hosting model, and it provides them... I'd say 95 to 99% of the same level of safety uh, on-prem. Uh, there are certain things that uh, we just can't make Azure Service Bus do underneath it, but it is probably safer than running in an infrastructure as a service model in the cloud, where saying, oh, all right, I'll just set up MSMQ in my uh, infrastructure as a service and run in Service Bus on top of that, and everything will be reliable. The problem is MSMQ is disk-backed. Right. And if, that, and if that disk in your infrastructure as a service goes bad, because in the cloud, it's quite a bit more flaky. Warren is chomping at the bit to respond to you. Here. Yeah. Angry Warren no. is er angry. Um, <laughs> You're not sitting next to him. Angry Warren, bad. Warren, <laughs> smash, man. So one of the things that are annoying in the cloud specifically is, and Udi mentioned this space, and you can't rely on any component in your infrastructure because um, you have a machine and it's running and it's crashed. If you have an on-premise machine, then, you know, you start it up. Right. And maybe, you know, you have a bad disk, so you press the disk, but you have backups and you can recover and everyone is happy. <coughs> when you do that on the cloud, where the machine crashed, a lot of the time, no one is even bothering to try to recover that. Right. You get a brand new machine, all of the data has been lost, try recovering from that. Uh, a lot of the, the MSMQ model is a store and forward. It, mean, it means that you store on disk, crash, restart, it will be sent. Right. If the entire machine went away, you went away. That those, those messages are gone. Yes. In the end, the messages exist exactly in one place. Yes. Yep. And that is going to disappear. Though I would like to pivot this back to Eves because we've been hearing some recent uh, words from Microsoft around their file system. Uh, maybe you can speak about the, the higher reliability file system. Oh, the new file system? Yeah. Uh, or is that under MVP wraps? No, I don't think so. I think there's been um, some announcements around but, it. Uh, but I have to be honest, I haven't played with the new file system as much. Um, but it's obviously a big enough issue that Microsoft's addressing it. Yes. Um, but the file system that has actually been added just the same way to be used as it is used in AWS, where you share it between different machines and you attach it from one machine to the next, and that you can use it as a network drive if you like. Um, but personally, I haven't been investing much time in it because I've been living for years in the cloud, and I've already accepted the fact that the disk will disappear and that the data will be gone. That if you design your application in such a way that 
it can handle that, that right. it can actually, that it takes it into account and that it can uh, recover from those kind of failures, then you don't need a, the persistence on the disk anymore. Well, the main thing is not losing a message. I mean, that, that to me is the scariest thing of it all. That's correct. But you can put it in many places where you won't lose it. Right. Part of the thing here is, I think, I think there are basically two models that, that you, you know, two mental models that you follow when you start thinking about distributed systems. Either A, you, you look to avoid ever losing anything ever, or B, you embrace the fact that failure is an inevitability, right? And it's, it, it almost takes me back to like, you know, Pascal's wager, right? He basically decided that he didn't know if God existed or not, it's kind of a bet, but, you know, the costs of being wrong, if you think God does, you know, doesn't exist, if you're wrong, it's a pretty high cost as opposed to living the good life if God does exist and blah, blah, blah. It's an interesting philosophical discussion. Here, let's assume for the moment that you decide that you're going to try to make sure that your infrastructure is perfect and will never crash. Aside from the amount of work and energy, assuming it's even possible, you had better be right because the day that you're wrong, you won't have any infrastructure in place to try to recover, restore, et cetera. And I'm totally with you. I'm all for dealing with the fact that a certain amount of the cloud is broken all the time. I'm concerned about losing data. The question is what data and what sort of promises you made with that. Right. So think about it this way. Let's say that uh, you want to make an order. You want to buy some Coke. Um, he means the soda. Yes. <laughs> I, well, well, people listening to this don't know that you gestured at my soda sitting here at the table. That's we fine. are in New York. You could have meant the other thing. Okay, so you want to buy some crystal meth. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently we have this... Uh, and crystal meth as a service. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you make a call to the crystal meth provider and you say, I want to you know... X amount of grams. And he says, okay, and that's the deal. If someone shoots that med dealer, you don't have a deal anymore. Right. So, it, so the question now is, okay, at what point do you actually have a deal? And then you get into the notion of distributed consensus. Yes. Th then you get into the notion, okay, uh, how many machines do I have to have this piece of information on before I can actually tell you, okay, this is actually going to go there? And then you go into even more interesting uh, scenarios. Let's say that uh, the, the you make a request, it was successfully processed, but something went wrong getting the response back to you. Right. So from our perspective, the, this has been a failure. From the perspective of anyone else, everything worked. Right. So now you have to have both the client and the server understand that. And well, it's, and you just painted the scenario where retry is not going to hurt you. Yes. Right now you're going to have two. Yes. yes. So well, now you have too much met and probably overdose. Well, so, so on the topic, I mean, you know, jumping off what, uh, what Ted was saying before of the whole, you know, uh, assuming anything can fail at any point in time, you start to, 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 to bake retries in. The, pr the problem, if you will, with that mentality, as, as Oren was just saying, sometimes things succeed. Yes. You know, luck would have it. And then to be able to, to figure out at each step of the way, did the client actually intend to submit a new order? Right. Or are they retrying the order that they didn't get feedback from? Right. Now, that is solvable when you're dealing with 
single client talking to a single server about a relatively well-defined thing. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about a server doing an orchestration with three other servers, and you know, it was somewhere in the middle of that, and some of them committed, and some of them didn't yet, and then it responds back to its client, and then other clients are talking to those services, and now everybody's got this big fragmented picture of state right. of what went on. So to say, oh, you just need to design your system in such a way that anything can fail, it's non-trivial yeah. the larger and the more complex a system that you build, which is why a lot of developers and why when I created in Service Bus, I said, you know what? We can't make sure that everything succeeds all the time, but let's create certain building blocks that there's going to be a very high chance that we can make them succeed at an infrastructure level, and when they fail, we'll divert those to an administrative path, an error queue, provide notifications around that. And someone's getting a call from customer service. Well, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's acceptable. Uh, it's acceptable for you to say, you know what, we accepted your order. Uh, I'm sorry, can't handle that. Right. It's not acceptable to accept the order and never call you back. Yeah. Right. So uh, one of the things that is super important in those scenarios is not only, okay, there's going to be failure, there's also going to be non-recoverable failures. Okay, what do you do then? At a certain point, every, every distributed system, ha I mean, you can paint the impossible picture, right? Just, just off the basis of TCP IP networking alone, you can paint a picture where you will never actually be able to get an act. There's a certain point in every distributed system where the system has to simply stop and throw its hand up in the air and say, help, help, I need an adult. Right. right. <laughs> Which is okay because failing silently, losing data. Right. Isn't acceptable. Yeah. Letting you know you've lost the data, I can probably live with. At least I know what to be upset about. Well, it's not necessarily letting you know that you lost data. It's saying, I've got this thing. I don't know what to do with it. Right. Yeah. I've reached a state that I can't, I wasn't programmed to handle. Yeah. And I need and Those security. are the cases where an admin needs to step in yeah. and take Which take I think is fair. Absolutely. Yeah. The problem is when the admin doesn't know how to handle that. Right. Or when you don't know how to do that when you order the system. Oh, I love that dialogue that says, contact your administrator. I'm like, I am the administrator, and right. I don't know what to do. <laughs> then Somebody contact your developer. just gave this to me, and I'm clueless. Yeah. So, so we were supposed to be talking about the future, and, you know, it's like all good .NET Rock shows, we encourage you to wildly speculate so that at another time we can come back to you and say, neener, neener, neener. So... Uh, what, what are we, what, where shall we start with the future of service architecture? I don't think it's going to be significantly different from what we're doing now, because if you look at what we're doing now, it's not all that significantly different from what we were doing back in the middleware days. There's new terms, there's new vendors, but we're still talking about stuff that, you know, uh, Gray and Reuter were talking about in the book Transaction Processing, which was published in the early 90s, right? These are still some of the same fundamental problems. How do I deal with consensus? How do I, you know, where do I want to apply transactions as opposed to sagas? As these are all these, these basic problems that, you know, I don't know that we will ever reach but a completely automated switch, solved, move on to the next yeah, thing. Yeah, but I think that you're missing something very important. Yeah, the problem and the solutions remain fairly the same. The problem is how you approach them and what sort of environment are you doing that in? Consider trying to solve a, a, a distributed solution 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Consider trying to solve it today. 
10 years ago, you were pretty much, okay, you're lucky that you have TCP IP, and that was pretty much it. Come, five, come 10 years ago, and that's 2004, so that mean the uh, web services were the thing. And just, we talked about earlier, you talked about open interoperability, but I don't know anyone who actually liked doing SOAP who wasn't a SOAP consultant. Right. And they were paid too much money to say that they weren't, that, that they didn't like that. I was a SOAP consultant, so yes. you're hurting me here, or You're really hurting me. The Seriously? thing between 10 years and now is the, the diversity of client. Like we suddenly have, in some ways I feel like we've hit a place where it's like, remember how we thought service orientation was a good idea and we're going to get to it someday? You better be there now because that architecture is needed to support what our customers are asking us to do now. So you have people moving there not because this is a buzzword, not because... I need it for my CV. You have right. people moving it because that's what they need to do. There's no other way to solve the problem. And more importantly, you have people doing that, and because that's the only way to solve the problem, they are either doing it right or they are failing and moving on. Right. But it also speaks to, you know, I think the future of the service bus then really is it being pushed down to more and more apps. Like this used to be the land of the enterprise, the big crazy system where you actually had a Java team and a .NET team and they would have to speak to each other once in a while. Now it's, I want to use my iPhone, we need a service bus. Yeah. I think in some respects, though, these are, I mean, in some ways, these are the same problems we were dealing with, largely because part of what we're trying to do today is to take a lot of our traditionally enterprise applications and data, and we're trying to push them out to consumers. Yeah. That's what the, that was the real power of the Internet from a business perspective. You know, used to be, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this tomorrow morning, but it used to be that if you were shipping something via FedEx, right, and you wanted to know where your package was, has it reached its destination, you picked up the phone, you did the rotary dial thing, because this was like 1979 or 80 or whatever, and you talked to Betty in the FedEx customer service center, and Betty said, oh, clackety, 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 you could hear her fingers on the IBM typewriter keyboard, your package is currently in Duluth. Okay, thank you, Betty, and you'd hang up the phone. Today, if you ship a package with FedEx, if you want to know where your package is... Touch tone, that's the only difference. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't call, you don't call Betty, right? You go and you look it up on your FedEx app on your phone, or right. you go to the FedEx on the web, and you do what Betty did. Yeah. You type in your tracking number. And so now there's millions of Bettys. Exactly. And so what the internet has done is it has enabled FedEx to push the enterprise software out to the edges of the company so that millions of clients can connect to that. And it also enabled them to fire Betty because now, you know, I mean, hey, that's cost savings. I don't know if that's a success or not. She didn't want to work at FedEx anyway. Yeah, so don't, don't kind feel of, bad kind of a terrible company. Anyway, the point simply here is that the internet is really enabling companies to take their internal enterprise applications and push that out to the very edges of the company right, yeah. for either direct consumer consumption or for developer consumption. And so in many respects, what I think we're trying to drive towards, and I think services and service bus are going to be a part of this, I think what we're driving towards is the idea of building platforms. I think the future, the next generation of things that we will be doing is what I'm calling platform-oriented development. I think that's what developers are steadily evolving towards. This is sort of a conflux of APIs, right? If you talk about web APIs or you talk about 
you know, uh, bus message-driven APIs or what have you, for developers to be able to consume that stuff at the edges, but also in some cases, people, either you or third parties creating UIs to consume your platform, being a part of your platform. This is what I think we're driving towards. But in many respects, it's just the next logical step from we're gonna take our enterprise apps and push them out to the edge, let other people consume them, but now we wanna start putting some context around it, we wanna start making some data available in very particular ways, et cetera, et cetera. Would a, would a Im incredibly high quantum leap in the speed and accessibility of internet access change what service bus looks like? Change what the world looks like. Well, of course Let's it start would. With that. Well, of course it would. But I mean, if if we had some sort of you know warp drive quantum leap in technology that allows us all to have gigabits of data everywhere in the world, you know, uh, quantum compute. I don't know. You use your imagination. But does that? How does that change services? It changed the kind of interactions that you have. Right now, most of the services deal with relatively small amount of data. Right. When you're talking about a big amount of data, you're talking about pretty much YouTube or maybe Flickr. They are the, they are the people who routinely deal with very large data sets. The Netflix of the world. Yes. Uh, when you start talking about, okay, it's possible for me to... Um, actually put a camera on my dog and stream it 24-7 and then send it to a service that is going to make a video of that and then send that to another service that's going to send me 500 uh, DVDs of that. Right now, if you try to do that, that's impractical impr just because of the let's move the data around and we're still talking about, you know, if I want to download four gigabyte of material on a Wi-Fi yeah. on Starbucks is going to take me two, three hours. Right. So, I mean, that was a thought exercise, but I'm just saying, what are the sea changes that could possibly happen that would change the landscape of services? You know, if you could put your thinking cap on here. I don't know the answer. I'm just throwing it out there. Eves, what do you think? Well, I think uh, the more capability we give, um, in fact, of bandwidth and connectivity, the more dispersed system that we will get instead of distributed systems. And the side effect of that will be that everything will be perceived as even more flaky than it is today. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so even if we have better connections and more bandwidth, um, the fact that everything becomes a service on its own will make these devices or these services push back on you when you try to consume too much of them. To, to guarantee others to get the and best piece of the And we're accepting that we're shares. never going to fix the reliability problem. It's not a problem worth fixing. No, it's, it's, not pro it's not a problem that you can fix. Right. No. We're always going to have 10% of stuff broken. You just have to live with it. Well, the, yeah. big, the bigger your environment becomes, the more likely it is that right. something is broken. But it's not only broken. That's not the only point. The second, the second big change is the as-a-service model where people start um, selling their data or selling their uh, business logic. Yeah. But they will actively push back on you. You cannot just consume everything from a service right. because it has to be distributed across every client that is using the service. So if one of them is going to try to get too many resources from the service, it will start actively pushing back. Right. The net result for the consumer is still the same. You don't get the service. 
Alternatively, you might have a case where you start having worthwhile microtransactions. Mm -hmm. So I'm absolutely fine with someone, you know, hitting my website 10,000 times a second if he's actually going to pay, you know, a millionth of a cent or whatever right. it is. Uh, so consumer resource, I will scale up accordingly because I can run on the cloud, but I will also be paid accordingly right. based on the client. Now, that's very open to abuse, obviously, but you already see things like that with uh, Bitcoins and uh, electronic transfers mm -hmm. that can handle things in a absolutely trans transparent fashion, an absolutely distributed fashion. So I, uh, I certainly think that it's possible that you will have, okay, uh, I have a service that this service requires you to transfer X amount of Bitcoins for a certain operation and go ahead and run with that. And it'll just interoperate. Udi, final words from final you. Words. Well, well, I think that we've been talking a lot from uh, an infrastructure level and a lot of us are, are developers here. Uh, the reality is that if we kind of, you know, the best way of predicting the future is to invent it. The second best way is to, to analyze historical trends and, and use that as a sort of rough guide. Uh, the thing that I've been seeing is that the size and the complexity of systems that are being built have been growing all the time. It's only going one way. Exactly. It's, it's going up. It's getting more complex. There are more moving parts, more data that you need to deal with, more rules. The business wants to change these systems more frequently. So not only is it getting more complex faster, there's this, you know, agile is part of that movement of an expectation, a demand from the business of, what do you mean we're going to be deploying once a year? Mm. It's a, you know, the Netflix of the world have already kind of set the bar that says, no, as many times a day as we feel like right, is sure. what we need to deploy. And so bigger systems, more data, more functionality being deployed more frequently. So the DevOps movement is kind of in there, but a lot of the things that we talk about internally in the end service bus space about making things backwards compatible so that you can run multiple versions in a hot swap kind of way, that becomes everybody's problem, okay? If you're deploying several times a day, but every time you deploy, you have two hours of downtime, yeah. that's not gonna work. It's gonna take priority. <laughs> so it's, it's not only that element of, okay, we've got infrastructure and bandwidth and all these types of things, yes, there is a natural evolution over there, but this ability to deploy frequently, to respond faster, to build more complex systems that do more things in real time is going to put a lot of strain on developers because I haven't been seeing Microsoft or Amazon or IBM providing developers better tools or better methodologies in this space say, this is how it's done. Right now, it's kind of a companies that are doing it, they're kind of throwing out little open source tidbits right. of, well, we kind of created this thing, you know, and, and it's been working for us. If you like, you can use it. But there's really no commitment around that. And it's a, you know, by the time you start using it, they're like, yeah, that was so last six months ago. Right. We have totally switched to something else. And you're like, well, where, when were you planning on telling us? Like, 
hello, we're Netflix. We're not a software vendor. We have no responsibility to the developers that are using our OSS tools. We're doing this out of the kindness of our hearts. You're still using Chaos Monkey? Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, that that bit is going to be the larger challenge. We've been trying to, to, to move in that space at our infrastructure level to, to, to fulfill our guarantees that if you build on top of us, never will you have a backwards compatibility conflict or a binary conflict or a data conflict. The next step for us is taking a lot of our methodologies and tools that we're using internally and then putting that out there and say, do it like this. We've been doing it like this for a couple of years now and it's been working and you all have been seeing that it's working. If you do it like this, then you'll be able to achieve similar results and we're committed to continuing down that path going forward. So in short, your future probably includes end service bus. Yeah, no, just a tiny little chance. Yeah. I think that's probably accurate to say. Thank you Udi, thank you Ted, Oren and Eve. How about a round of applause for the panel? So we'll see you next time on Dominant Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.